The Guardian. Welcome once more to the Week in Review, the Guardian podcast that really should see an osteopath about its tendency to lean to the left. Coming up this week with another ream of secret documents thrust into the public domain, we discuss what the Palestine papers tell us about diplomacy in a WikiLeaks world. Also in the podcast... It was ironic. I know when you listen to these things in the manner in which they've been presented, they sound very different, but of course it was all part of lad's mad humour. Andy Gray is left feeling blue and Richard Keyes is shown the door as the Sky Sports presenters get the red card for their sexist taunts. And... I'm a man of the people. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. We examine how class and privilege has crept back into British politics and ask, has meritocracy had its day? I'm Jonathan Friedland and this is the Week in Review from The Guardian. And joining me in the studio is the most unholy of trinities. Rial Zatbat is the Guardian's religious affairs correspondent. And Perkins is one of our clandestine clique of leader writers. And Tim Samuels is a broadcaster and documentary maker, if that's a little bit too vague. He's also the presenter of Radio 5 Live's Men's Hour. Thank you all for coming in. Let's start with you, Rial What's caught your eye this week? What's happened this week? Um, I've got tennis elbow, apparently. Don't play tennis. I think it feels more like sledgehammer arm. (laughs) It just means that my left arm is is redundant. How did this happen if you don't play tennis? I don't know. I had to go through various exercises in my GP surgery and he was asking me if I'd slept in a funny position or slept in a different bed. Or even slept. Or even slept, exactly. Or slept with a tennis player. (laughs) It's contagious. Tim, what about you? What's your highlight this week? The, The biggest shock of the week was that the McDonald's branch in Leyland in Lancashire... Um, has banned the wearing of tracksuits after 7 o'clock at night. I, I don't know why that hasn't been front page in The Guardian. And are you a regular diner at the McDonald's in Leyland in Lancashire? Uh, not since I uh, emigrated from the north. Um, no, but, <laughs> but Why I mean, have they banned them? Um, a tendency for people wearing tracksuits after 7 o'clock towards belligerents. So uh, somebody turned up wearing a tracksuit and was sent home to change, and he changed and came back and then... So McDonald's now has a dress food. code. That's amazing. And you could go... go to the drive-through window. Yeah, that would work as long as you're not wearing a tracksuit. And highlight for you this week. I think it was the week that all the uh, strands of revolution began to come together because it's just been the most extraordinary week and we're starting to see um, the kind of cumulative effect of a whole lot of stories, um, the, the WikiLeaks, the Palestine Papers, food price hikes, and then we look at Ireland and we see uh, you know, the impact of the financial crisis and I, I just think this is one of those kind of extraordinary weeks that you know, we're going to look back on and say that this is when it all started to kind of fall into a different shape. So you're not just talking about Tunisia and Yemen and Egypt, you're saying even in Ireland there's something in the air here? I, I think it's just the kind of beginning of coming to fruition of all these kind of extraordinary events of the last year. Well, let's talk about all all, all these leaks then. For the last seven days, The Guardian has been publishing the Palestine Papers, the inside story of a decade of thwarted negotiations in the Middle East, thousands of confidential records of talks between Israeli, Palestinian and American leaders were leaked to Al Jazeera and then shared exclusively with The Guardian here in London. Now, there's a very fine edition of our Focus podcast concentrating on the impact of these papers, particularly on the Palestinians. So let's not tread over that same ground here. Instead, I'd like to look at the broader question of uh, this WikiLeaks world we now operate in, where nothing's off limits or confidential or secure. And, and let's start with you. You know, you, you've been a long time observer of politics and you know what politicians are like. Do you think politicians, also negotiators in the field of diplomacy, are they going to have to work in a completely different way now, knowing, as they must know after all these leaks, that what they say could one day come out? Well, I, th- I think two things are going to happen. One, I think 
it would be naive to assume that this kind of information anarchy is going to be allowed to persist. It's not. They're going to lock down. They're already finding ways of locking down. How? Uh, well, I mean, one of the absurd things about the whole WikiLeaks scandal was that their information was so readily downloadable. And, I mean, actually, it now looks less certain about how exactly how it got into the public domain. But if it really did get come in from one disenchanted, you know, bloke in the American army taking a Britney Spears CD and pretending to, you know, listen to her music while downloading thousands of secret files. I thought know, it was Madonna, there's something wrong with it. And you think it's Lady Gaga, I so there's something... Oh, it's Lady Gaga, Gaga. Lady yes. Gaga's Britney more Spears subversive, is, yeah, you see. Yeah. Is that the key thing that you think, the fact that it's easier? Because Anne's rightly saying, you know, there have always been leaks, but you couldn't actually walk out of a building with 300,000 sheets of paper, whereas actually just with a memory stick and a computer, you can do it, Rianne. Oh, no, there's much more um, scope for damage. And I like your term information anarchy. Um, and I think people's ideas of confidentiality and privacy um, are vastly changed from what they were. You can make a casual aside to someone. And the next thing you know, it could be in, part, in a diplomatic cable. It could end up on Twitter. I remarked to a friend over lunch how I thought the chief rabbi looked a bit like Jerry Adams. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he might actually tweet that. And I said, please don't put that out on Twitter. Oh, so you mean even in private conversations yeah, between I've regular re- people who are not politicians? Exactly. You've got to worry. You can make I a head... I've done a casual aside. I've done a casual aside to a colleague, and we've just been talking about something. And he used that in a column. And I thought, but I didn't say you could. You have now said it on a podcast. It just strikes me, (laughs) which is even more public. (laughs) So you've given yourself away there. Tim, what about this um, thing uh, of how politicians themselves should respond to this? I mean, should they now work on the assumption that literally nothing is off the record? Even when, because these Palestine papers, they were just in the room, their own team, chatting with each other. And there was a note taker and that got out. So it's not it's it's just an internal discussion. Should a politician, negotiator, work on that assumption, nothing is ever off the record? I think potentially it is incredibly damaging to diplomacy. I mean, if you you look at Northern Ireland, when uh, Gerry Adams and John Hume began meeting in private, and that didn't come out for five years, if that had been blown out of the water somewhere between um, 88 and 93, that could have destabilised what turned into the Northern Ireland peace process. So it's difficult because your journalistic instincts are to get stuff out and to reveal, and and this is great, and this is crusading journalism. But at the same time, the consequences might be incredibly damaging for peace. And, you know, if in the Middle East, the Palestinians behind the scenes were moving towards a more realistic stance, if there was a genuine partner for peace, which Israel says hasn't existed, and that has now been undermined, and if with a new Israeli election, peace became more tangible... This has been incredibly damaging. You mentioned Riaz at tweeting, mm. and that, that's a big part of this as well. The, the, the American politicians have been tweeting from Congress during Barack Obama's State of the Union yeah, speech this week. People tweeting from court. What do we think about that? Is that is that it, like Tim was saying? Are we torn because we like openness and we're journalists and we all think that's a great thing, or is there something going wrong here where nothing is sacred almost? I think Twitter has revolutionised the way that journalists communicate with readers and vice versa. But it's incredibly damaging as well because there's no control over it. Um, There's no privacy. Everybody can see what you're doing all of the time. And you're commenting on a story as it breaks and it's sort of one step on from the live blog as it happens. But I I mean, this point about how it's now not, you're not able to control it. And Mm. some of us are saying, well, that's a bit of a problem in court. Mm. On the other hand, maybe that's a great thing in democracy terms. And we've seen that with these revolutions or maybe revolts happening in Tunisia and Egypt, etc. First move of the government is to try and cut off the internet and shut down social media. Is that futile? Is that King Canute trying to turn the waves back or what, Tim Samuels? I I don't know. We're kind of literally 
there at the moment, aren't they? With you know, Egypt is as as we speak trying to pull the plug on on probably its broadband and, and, and shut down Twitter and Facebook and the like. And there was a tweet saying there's still internet in the five-star hotels, so trying to urging the crowds to go to the Four go Seasons to Hotel to carry on tweeting. It's, it's a nice hotel. I don't blame <laughs> them. If you're going to revolt, do it in style. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, this is a live experiment, and it's very exciting to see whether you know, a, a country like Egypt, you know, he's been in power for so long and has had such control over, over the mechanisms of society and, and information, and now this this is this is the face off. Is is he going to be able to face down modern technology or not? You know, we, you can see different examples. In Tunisia, the WikiLeaks thing seems to have been a positive thing. In other cases, you were arguing perhaps Palestine Papers. Maybe the impact will be uh, harmful. I mean, we are just feeling our way on this, particularly in the media. I mean, there's one criticism which says this WikiLeaks dump and the Palestine Papers document dump. It's maybe this is an old romantic view, but this is not journalism as it was in... It's not exactly Woodward and Bernstein, is it? Rooting out information, just receiving hundreds of thousands of papers. Well, yeah, there's a difference between going to a supermarket and picking out the things you like and just getting a cardo to bring something to you once a week. Um, There's no real effort involved. You just sat at your kitchen table tapping away. Um, Warning, Guardian middle class reference. I'm so sorry. cardo there. Other other supermarket (laughs) delivery services are available. Um, Yeah, you know, journalism, schmernalism, really. I mean, if you've got the information, it sounds like sour grapes from other media or outlets who were the preferred partner oh, of maybe Julian that's right. Assange. Maybe it is a bit, of, a bit of jealousy. Do you, what do you think, uh, Tim? Is it something passive a bit just to receive these documents rather than winkling them out as we imagine old-time journalists did? I think what it does is it slightly devalues them because when, when a leak comes out and, and, it's, and it's been ferreted out and a lot of journalism's gone, gone into it, then it, it creates a big splash. And I think with the WikiLeaks, day after day, each revelation almost in, induced a fatigue. It's, oh. and, and, and they became less impactful because of the sheer volume of information. So stories which other alone otherwise would, would have been big stories almost became a little bit sort of pushed down the papers well, and, and a bit redundant. I mean, I think, I, I, th- I think that is true, though. There was a huge amount of information. I think you're also downplaying the fantastic work that went into mm. contextualising it all and, and, you know, second sourcing where possible and, you know, redacting, making sure that nothing was going to actually cause harm on the ground. I also think you're being a little bit romantic about how journalism worked. I mean, journalism's always been about nourishing contacts and, and it's also, of course, it's been about, about thinking and about kind of understanding whether which way the story is likely to go and who you need to know and so on but in the end documents on the whole tend to be kind of you know you, you tend to get the document in the raw and then you make the story out of it you, you, it's not as if you kind of had to had to kind of do more than that it's just a different way of getting it and it used to be a brown envelope and now it's a memory brown, stick yeah. but it's, yeah. it's the same was, idea was there any discussion at the guardian this week about publishing the palestine papers and what the impact may or may not be on, on the peace process there was certainly a lot of discussion about all that there was and uh, in a way i think the one point i made in the in the paper was that uh, you can't in a way as journalists think about all the consequences of everything because you'd be you'd be hidebound and never publish anything in the end I mean, that, if you have information you have to publish it and and the consequences have to uh, roll out from that because otherwise you would be kind of censoring yourselves. We'll leave that there. You can read more about the Palestine Papers on guardian.co.uk and that edition of our Focus podcast, like all of our programmes and documentaries, can be found at guardian.co.uk slash audio. The Week in Review with Jonathan Friedland. 
Now, the big water cooler story of the week was the hoo-ha over Andy Gray and Richard Keyes, the Sky Sports presenters, who were caught on mic but off-air, expressing views that even Bernard Manning might have found a bit tricky. Some have found it ironic that it was the pair's Neanderthal attitudes rather than their slightly tired brand of punditry that ultimately cost them their jobs. But then, as they say, it is a funny old game. Anyway, here's what the actor and comedian David Schneider made of the whole sorry saga. It's an irony, given their sexist attitudes, that Andy Gray and Richard Keyes are probably best described, if you'll pardon my language, as a right pair of tits. Even the writers of Alan Partridge would be hard-pressed to come up with a line as good as Keyes' instinctive remark about Karen Brady. She says football is sexist. Come off it, love. Yes, idiots the pair of them. I'm sure even a dinosaur like Big Ron Atkinson was appalled when he heard their discussion of the female referee's assistant. Of course she can understand the offside rule, he'd have said. It's not as if she's black. Once a YouTube clip of Andy Gray asking a female colleague to tuck in his trousers was posted, he had to go. Even claiming he had a copy of Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex down there wouldn't have saved him. Keys hung on a little longer till he smashed it. His career, I mean. A joke which the Sun used, but I used it first on Twitter. It's important that you know that. There was something really pitiful about the video of Keyes talking to Jamie Redknapp about the latter hanging out the back of it where it is a lady called Louise. Here was a man who'd never played football trying to ingratiate himself with the real thing. It was small man syndrome writ large. Yes, he's a dinosaur, but one of those weedy little vegetarian ones who always gets snapped up by the Tyrannosaurus Rex, or as he would put it, by the dark forces of Sky Sports. He may well have a point about the dark forces. Maybe if you dug into who leaked the clips, you'd find that the camera operator was a guy called Sauron and the producer was a Lord Voldemort. Maybe Andy Gray's suing of News International does have something to do with it, in which case I fully expect to hear a clip very soon where an off-camera Sienna Miller calls Judy Dench a tosser. But it still doesn't detract from the fact that what Gray and Keyes said was out of order, or to put it in terms a woman can understand, offside. Still, the stories brought a lot of double standards to the fore, not just in the tabloid headlines, which had stuff like Andy Gray in horrific sexist rant about referee's assistant, bikini babe pictures of her inside, but also in the fumbling of many football fans, quick to condemn Gray and Keyes, but still struggling themselves to say referee's assistant instead of linesman. I include myself amongst them, and I'm someone who throughout the 80s insisted the plural of fishermen was fisher people. That's a good outcome that we're all forced to look at the sexism within language itself. What I'm not so sure about is this new WikiLeaks phone-hacking world we've entered where nothing is in the private domain. I'm sure if he hadn't resigned by the end of the week, someone would have posted one of Richard Keyes' dreams on YouTube. That's how bad it's got. We all speak differently, more guardedly in public than in private, unless, of course, we're Ricky Gervais. I mean, which of us hasn't at one time, when we're with people we trust quietly called a nice old lady a bigoted woman then had it broadcast live to millions of people. That's the problem here. Remove all privacy and you remove the right to be cheeky, playful, ironic. There are jokes I'd make to my friends I would never say in public. They know I'm being ironic, that I don't really think that about Ulrika Johnson. The public might not. Every discourse carries with it its own particular system of rules and methodology, as Derrida said. Or was it Andy Gray? So for the sake of comedy, for the sake of the occasional therapeutic bout of bitching, let's try and preserve some sense of what's private, and remember that, above all, it's always all about the context. Oh, and good luck to Andy Gray in his next far more suitable job commentating on Silvio Berlusconi's life. Right, (sighs) 
You got that? Hey, Jonathan, your uh, your producer's got a lovely big bottom. Uh, you, you you won't you won't use it. He'll cut that out, yeah. David Schneider struggling off mic there. Tim Samuels, you present Men's Hour on Radio 5 Live. Is there any part of you that actually does want to stick up for the red-blooded, old-school masculinity embodied by Keys and Grey? I mean, if I did that, could I leave the Guardian building alive? <laughs> You'd be escorted out of the building. The, the one thing, the, there is a... I mean, I think it was a straight yellow and then retrospective yellows followed and then it turned to red and it, it's very hard to defend but there, there's a little bit of hypocrisy amidst all this as, as dave was saying and when you when you take sky sports news for example it, it looks you know people literally go from page three shoots to, to reading sky sports news alongside some old fella and the co-presenter who he has to to tuck his wire in has been in loaded um, I bumped into Rod Liddell yesterday, who, who fed me the information, saying, um, and there's a quote saying, I used to do it girl on girl, which I, I checked. And Is Rod, that Rod, Rod Liddell saying yeah. that, or the presenter? <laughs> um, Rod, Rod Liddell, actually, yeah. Um, and, you know, there are topless shots. So I, I, it's not to excuse, but I think Sky Sports themselves have created a sort of page three sports atmosphere. And, and, and in that context, it's perhaps not that surprising when somebody slips into Benny Hill as 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 oafish as it might be, so there's a little bit of hypocrisy around that. So are you saying that? Um, is it Charlotte <laughs> Jackson? Mm. Because she done she was sort of like for it. Sheets, yeah. because she'd done these saucy shots. Her her workplace had effectively sanctioned and said, "Okay, we don't mind if you go and do these saucy photo shoots." Um, and if they'd actually told her not to do it, it would kind of maintained a degree of professionalism and less sexism. They wouldn't allow you've that created, the Guardian. You've, you've, create, you've created an atmosphere when it, it's, it's, it's more like, right it's, to objectify well, women. Well, it's like well, it's, you've created a Benny Hill atmosphere where, you know, you, you, your, your presenters are picked, I imagine, primarily not for their inside knowledge of, of footballing pedigree, well, but because they're... On. This, is, this, is, this belongs to the same school of thought as, you know, short skirt, women in short skirts are asking for it. No, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying there, there, is a, there is an atmosphere. When you watch Sky Sports News, it... The, the female lineup is, I, th- I think, I think demeaning. I think it's, you know, I, I look at it and think that's incredibly sexist and demeaning. I'd like to see people presenting who aren't incredibly attractive, patriarchy-looking women. Because so you're saying the double standards is on the part of Sky Sports management who are sacking Andy Grave for doing exactly what they're doing in their program. I think so. I think. I think. Well, I mean, you know, he he took it too far. I'm trying to help you out here. There's objectification <laughs> of women I'm, going on from all sides. Charlotte Jackson objectifying herself. I think, herself I think, I think Sky, Sky Sports is objectifies women incredibly. I think if you look at that, if I want if I want to turn on and see whether Tavares is leaving my club or not, I don't particularly care who's telling me that news. I want someone who knows what they're doing, who's informed. I don't want someone who's who's there because of their looks. So and Sky Sports News have traded off that for years. Where, I mean, it's probably good for viewing figures. You know, it's like when Loaded put someone on the cover who's a woman or some man, their figures go up. So I, I think there is a, a sexism which is endemic in Sky Sports. I think you know Five Live, for example, have some fantastic women journalists, and they're there because they're great journalists and, and they really understand football. I think in the case of Sky Sports, they've they're tokens. They've created an atmosphere. But that, but, what do you but, think? But, but they're all, well, I, I mean, I just wanted to make the point, um, not least because I've got a daughter who would love to be a sports reporter, that there are women who probably look good and but also know about sport. I mean, the two aren't mutually exclusive. No, but it'd be but, an incredible coincidence when you watch Sky Sports <laughs> News. 
It does seem there is an impression about how Sky Sport with their coverage have been doing this. I didn't know this. I saw a clip of their show Soccer AM, which on very early on a Saturday morning, which apparently is all male, apart from you know somebody who comes on, a model comes on, does very sort of physical jerk exercises what? for the blokes to look at. I mean, physical, it is unbelievable. Physical what exercises? I was using a very 1950s phrase. She's doing sort of uh, aerobics kind of thing, <laughs> movements in front of a group of whooping blokes. And this is on at nine o'clock in the morning. And it's very Berlusconi-ish. It looks like something out of Bunga, Italian bunga, TV. okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, she comes out in a bikini, take, you know, it's all of that going on. And I didn't know that was on. It's on 9 o'clock in the morning, which raises some other issues. And it just, that's the hypocrisy, potentially, is that now the Sky Sports condone all this in their programming and then two mm. uh, presenters take it to the max and then they get fired as if they're somehow doing something different from what the rest of the station is doing. That's the claim. Thank, thank you for articulating what, where I was trying to get to <laughs> yeah, without, without getting a guardian bludgeoning me I around mean, the head. Tr- I mean, the truth is we are, we are, we are very um, conflicted, I think is probably the word, about this because even in The Guardian uh, online, somebody rehashed that tired old headline about Joan Bakewell being the thinking man's crumpet, which mm. raised a few eyebrows. Because you think we should be beyond that kind of language I think we should probably, I think we should be beyond it, but... And, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of where, where we are and where we ought to be, you know, the years ought dilemma. Um, and... <laughs> And we're, and we're not where we ought to be. The thing that really annoys me is where, is where it's always described as being politically correct, as if it was some kind of shroud, as if you didn't actually believe that, you know, there are things you do do and don't do. And, it, it, you know, you're just trying to kind of sort of tick boxes. Which well, I always thought Gary Young in this paper wrote a brilliant column on that and settled the issue of political correctness. He said political correctness is just another word for courtesy and politeness and good manners. You don't call somebody a rude name. And once you think of it like that, then suddenly the very people who howl about political correctness realise that it's, uh, it's, it's rather different. What about the – is there a double standard here the other way? I mean, you mentioned thinking uh, man's crumpet. Yet George Clooney is routinely in this paper and everywhere else described as the thinking woman's crumpet does that make any difference you've um you've got me bound to write there johnny um thank Rial's you <laughs> i mean what about you thought about this no do think, do think about it but you know that is the example that's the counter argument that actually women can talk like this as somehow it's presented ironically the show loose women on tv lots of leering oh, that's the attractive example men. that's being used as yeah like, so you know that maybe women getting their revenge or well, they're being well, ironic well what do you think this is a tremendous diss on all the Guardian men in the building. But I've never <laughs> made those kind of remarks about, well, I don't think I've made remarks about uh, Guardian male colleagues' physical attractiveness. Um, that is a diss. You're quite right. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> but, it, but it is true that but, there is absolutely a default position when um, people are talking about women that, mm. that almost invariably includes an assessment of their physical of their, beauty, of their, yeah. of their or otherwise, physical yeah. attributes. Yeah, whereas. I don't look at Johnny and go, God, Thank look you. at his wrist. Thanks. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Tim. Sorry. I, I, I do. <laughs> but is it, at this point, that it, you know, and particularly it's in the media, maybe it's in society, but any woman who appears, particularly on screen, is immediately assessed for how she looks, whether young or old. There was old Miriam uh, Riley case um, to do with her appearances on Countryfile, older woman. Is this just something endemic? And Andy Gray and Richard Key's just an extreme example of something that runs perhaps right through the media. I think it has been. I think it is slowly dying out whether it will or not i don't know whether you know there's something endemic within how a woman looks that will never die out in terms of male judgment and what was i think that the fiore this week is because it if it is sort of dying out or at least in in terms of the way you articulate publicly what was so surprising was to hear that again it was it was pulling us back into the 80s or the 70s when andy gray played Mm. broadly there is a you know the genders of are aligning we're all becoming increasingly similar men and women particularly in an urban setting 
equally talented, equally capable, equally neurotic, worrying about similar things and trying to juggle through quite difficult modern life. And yes, you know, in, in that context, absolutely have female um, assistant referees. I nearly said linesmen. Uh, assistant referees. Why not? And, that, and that's what jarred this week. It's a big question now for Sky about what they do to replace her, because people are saying if they just hire another two men, they'll that's the same old, same old. But if, on the other hand, they hire a woman, it will be tokenism. So what do you think they'll do? They should get loose women on there. <laughs> To get loose women to present. You're we're using that with a capital L and a capital W. Capital, yeah. Well, rather than just generically loose women <laughs> yeah, who are wearing short skirts and asking for it. They're already yeah. doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they should. But I think, I mean, there is um, Gabby Logan who's out there as a very accomplished yeah. TV. Yeah. I think, I mean, my guess is that's what they do. And she's do. attractive. So ticks it, two boxes. It ticks all their boxes. Yeah. I think that is what they do. And I think they'll probably mm. take the flack on tokenism because I just think that's probably their, their way out of it. You can read more about the fallout from the Sky Sports sexism row all over guardian.co.uk. And now, as Ben Elton might say time for a bit of politics that still is policy or not let's make it clear uh, mr speaker this grammar school boy is not going to take any lessons from that public school boy on the importance on the importance of children from less privileged backgrounds gaining access to university Oh, the nostalgia. That's Michael Howard, remember him, sticking it to Tony Blair during Prime Minister's questions back in 2003. Were that exchange to take place today, we'd have a blue-blooded old Etonian being sneered at by a fellow Oxbridge graduate who grew up in North London's Shishi neighbourhood of Primrose Hill. David Cameron, George Osborne and the majority of people in the coalition cabinet are millionaires. And when the next election comes around, you'd be hard-pressed to differentiate the elite diction of any of the current party leaders, all of whom, of course, are male, middle-aged and white. So is this the end of the age when Britain could be governed by those who had started relatively near the bottom and made their way to the top? Anne Perkins, Andrew Neil fronted this very uh, interesting programme this week, all about posh and posh about class and politics, um, suggesting that the, uh, the, the posh are now dominant in politics, just as we've been hearing there. What's your take on it? I think it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? There are more old Etonians in the Cabinet than there are women. I mean, it is, you would have thought, as Andrew Neil pointed out, when Douglas Hurd failed to get a leadership, at least partly because he was an old Etonian, it, it is quite... Uh, gobsmacking that we've kind of got all the way back here. And we got here via a by-election. Do you remember in, um, was it Crewe? Crewe and Nantridge, yeah. Where, where, you know, they actually had confronted the whole class thing and Labour tried to run a kind of slightly classist campaign and got hammered for it. And yet this is where we've ended up. And, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit, a bit of a backlash. I think you do need to make a distinction. Andrew Neil kind of elided uh, public school and Oxbridge and speaking of somebody who had the benefits of neither, uh, I think there's a difference between Oxbridge, which uh, is still at least a meritocracy, even if kids from public school do tend to go in with an advantage. In other words, not just about the parents who had money to get into Oxford or Cambridge. You could be from a, a relatively poor background and nevertheless get there. So. If, 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 you, if, if you've had a, you know, been to a good enough school, yeah. I have to say that did leap out at me too, the merging of the two categories, because I think they are different in the same way you do. But, you know, maybe I would say that. But there were, the, the statistics he offered, Andrew, in this programme were quite gripping. 19 old Etonian prime ministers, 20 old Etonians in parliament, including Eight cabinet ministers, as you say, more than there are uh, women. Riazza, just watching that, did you think Andrew Neil's onto something here? 
Well, I was really annoyed with Andrew Neil because I've just done a programme for Radio 4 called How to Get into Oxford. Oh, and that is it, annoying. It is very annoying. And um, my point of it was that, yes, you can get there whatever your background. It just so happens that, you know, people from fee-paying um, schools are disproportionately mm. represented when you consider... No, that's family. definitely uh, true. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really entertaining, but he was trying to do too much in one programme. And, God, if, you know, he'd been able to, he should have maybe looked at it section by section. If he was talking about the political elite, then yes, there are huge similarities between people in the coalition and people in shadow cabinet. The fact that so many people in the shadow cabinet studied PPE and they all know each other. That's politics, and they got philosophy and economics. Other. Exactly, yes. yeah. Yeah, but it's true. It's, I mean, it's two, two, two from the same family, the two Miliband brothers, yeah. and then two from the same household. And they all went and on to be Cooper. spads and now they've all risen through the ranks. Well, that, I just that's part you of either this. go through... You either attack the Oxford system or you attack the grammar school system. And I think what he secretly wanted to do was to say that I got where I am because of grammar schools. But he Mm. never quite got there. Yes, it's not that secret with him, is it? This has been an issue for him for a long time. But moving beyond just that programme, I mean, there is this point, isn't there, be, uh, that the, you know, Cameron and Clegg were both special advisers, Ed Miliband was as well. It's, politics is drawn from an increasingly narrow band. Are we losing something from that, Tim, do you think? I, th- I think that's the point. I, and I think education is is possibly the side issue at the moment because you, you can go, you know, someone like Cameron can go to Eton but have a, a life experience which changes him and gives him more, more empathy and, and, and uh, attitudes beyond the experience he's grown up with. What, what's more pertinent, I think, is this political class that people come from where you go to university and then you go straight into politics and that's all you know and you, and you don't have any, any wider life experience or resonance. And increasingly, you know, you can't have a second job. I mean, I think that's sort of pretty much a, a no-no nowadays. So, and what's but, the impact of that on politics? What, what, what then right. is lost? Well, by I, the fact I think by not having a second job, that makes you kowtow more. You, you can't say, well, two fingers to you. I'm going to, I'm going to, on principle, I'm off because I've got quite a good job in the city or I'm a barrister and I can go back to that. So it makes people more spineless and, and, and towing the party line. And it, career politics, I don't know when you meet them. I mean, I did, I did a uh, BBC film last year with politicians who are stepping down. And there's a difference, there's a difference in texture when you meet someone like Richard Caborn in Sheffield, who who's, who's works in the steel plants and knows his community and knows his people and, and has a different life experience he, he can bring to the table rather than someone who's just been a, an advisor post-Oxbridge. Well, on those lines, because this isn't just about the Tories and the Labour side as well, you know, Alan Johnson, John Prescott had both come up through unions, both had been, wor- you know, workers in their earliest part of their lives, and yet... Uh, Labour now, the, all five leadership candidates were Oxbridge graduates. I know we're making that point about Oxford, but uh, there, it is much more middle class now. Is something being valuable being lost there, do you think? Oh, I think undoubtedly something valuable is being lost. And in a way, I can see that the justification for the way uh, Andrew Neil kind of elided the question about selective education and, um, and so on into it is that he was saying that it's being lost because the kind of bottleneck narrows lower and lower down. I think that's really the point he's trying to make. Um, and, um, and and I think that's true, and I think that's a genuine and really serious problem, and it was very interesting to hear people complaining in very much the same tones about the capturing of the music industry by posh people. Uh, you know, it is happening, and, and journalism it is incredibly true of journalism, uh, and the result is that, you know, education for too many people looks less and less like a gateway, and, you know, more and more like 
It's an interesting idea, this rise of the posh. I mean, people have noticed that with all kinds of things, whether it's you, Fernley Whittingstall, or the people who own innocent smoothie drinks. It is these often quite double-barreled, sort of eaten characters. Music was a new one on me, but apparently that's true as well. The people, you know, behind the Keen were a public school educated Chris Martin from Coldblill. Is there a kind of new ascendancy here that that, uh, means that paths are being blocked for other people, Riazza? I think paths are being blocked much earlier on in your life and your choice of education unfortunately has as much to do with your chances of success as your social class does. Um, I'm really fortunate in that I've had quite a lot of social mobility so when people talk about posh people working at The Guardian I don't count myself as one of them. Um, But you went to Oxford? I went to Oxford. Which I agree is not the same as being posh but it does mean you have kind of taken a... um, uh, you know, the, the fast escalator. Not really. <laughs> well, it may not feel like to you, but I bet no. to, to, to well, somebody I go, you were at But the thing is, with, I didn't go, yeah. didn't go from Oxford, Oxford to journalism. I went from Oxford to, like, random jobs. You know, I was a copy typist. I worked as a switchboard operator. But I think, what, in a way, what yeah. Anne's driving is that if you hadn't gone to Oxford, mm. your chances of having gone through all those jobs and then getting to a place yeah. like The Guardian maybe would have been much harder. I mean, because that's the this thing, point about journalism is a good one, don't you think? I mean, the, the, that now uh, they're saying this uh, about the, the larger media that, it's about having an Oxford education, but also you have to be able to have the means economically to work for a couple of years as an intern. Uh, maybe you have to have parents who live in London so you don't have to commute. Uh, this was an issue Andy Burnham raised in his Labour leadership campaign that we're drawing from an ever narrow elite and, and journalism is as much guilty, as, as guilty as this as anyone else. Mm, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, I know the, the BBC have spent a lot of time trying to think about how do you bring in and, and give a chance to people who, who, who don't live in London, who, who can't spend their summer crashing with a friend or, or, or a family member. And, and, it, and it's really tough. And, um, you know, I, I dare say that possibly, you know, the, the, something has been lost in the mix as well, having lost grammar schools. I mean, for, for the advantages and disadvantages that they have, they widened the bottleneck earlier down the food chain. And the opportunities from going to a grammar school were, were you know the, the huge grammar school to Oxbridge through flow and, and and that sort of thing and and by losing grammar schools you have lost some degree of social mobility I think all right just before we go you may have read this week that the Bishop of Sheffield has encouraged his congregation to listen to Lily Allen as part of a Bible studies course he's running presumably it's the radio friendly non-swearing versions but the church is modernizing so who knows anyway with that in mind I want to ask you what your most inspirational song lyric is and there's bonus points for anyone who sings for us Tim you've got a record virtually into the charts didn't you with your Zimmers yeah your elderly band so go on there must be music that inspires you and please do give us a blast um, I was uh, heavily inspired and um, uh, taken over by the Smiths as a kid in Manchester and um, Meters Murder, the song pushed me over to the edge into, into militant vegetarianism. Oh, you just redeemed yourself with the Guardian 18. audience just beautifully there. All your Sky Sports it, remarks exactly, are undone. Yes, I used to, uh, You're I used a vegetarian. to cam- campaign outside McDonald's as a kid and, and go on kids' TV wearing Meters Murder t-shirts and uh, tend to my Morrissey quiff. But having sort of given her that up although I'm a, a, a reluctant carnivore I now if I'm listening to the album Meters Murder have to skip that track uh, at the end because it, it, it pulls me back when, when Morrissey sings you know heifer wines could be human cries I can, I can start to feel the guilt elevating so I, I, I now have to stop the album short so you're a guilty recovering vegetarian yes I think I mean, you, you've ticked uh, several 
Uh, okay. oh, am I going to be allowed back in the building? Very now? much so after that. Very, very. I'm a pro feminist, vegetarian. Goji berry eating, yeah. porridge eating man. Yeah. Sounds like my Guardian date profile. <laughs> <laughs> Reality. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, inspirational really. Well, I was really surprised that they chose Lily Allen. Well, I wasn't actually because it talks about materialism and. Uh, excessive devotion to superficiality and paranoia and insecurity. Um, inspirational song lyrics. Um, you don't have to feel like you're a waste of space. Your original cannot be replaced. If only knew what the future holds. After the hurricane, there's a rainbow. Oh, that's very nice. Neil Young? I'm no, Katy Perry, Fireworks. Katy Perry, I thought it was Neil Young after the... Oh, no, that's a different song. God, that dates me so badly. Katy Perry, fantastic. That's more modern than Lily Allen. I'll, I'll take that out in the edit. Take the, we'll take that out, Ben. Yeah. Remove that, please. Yeah. Um, and Anne, are you declining this exercise? Because no, well, it's right. No, I, I, it's, oh, you've I, now got I, one? I, well, no, no, it's not that. I thought I was being asked to do something quite different, much cleverer. Oh. Well, I thought I was going to be... I, I was thinking the Palestine papers and the, and the, and the lovely kind of stones kind of riff in it. You know, oh, you can't yes. always get what you want. On. Um, and I th- so I thought you were asking me to kind of come up with um, oh God, you know no, be far too difficult. Well, you no, come up I with something I brilliant. Possibly have done that, but you know if, if you want you know tracks from my childhood that made me feel gooey, you know Do. you know bridge over troubled water oh, every time. That's right, good. You know. You're pretty mean now. Yeah. <laughs> Neil Young sounds positively hit <laughs> by comparison. <laughs> I'm so glad for that. But you're quite right. The Palestine Papers had that they said their policy going into the round should be you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes you'll get what you need. But I think that is the perfect... you going to get that by the looks of it. Well, don't open that discussion <laughs> up again, <laughs> Riazat, please. I think that's a very inspiring moment to leave it. So thank you to Riazat, Butt, Anne Perkins and Tim Samuels. You'll find links to all the stories we've discussed at guardian.co.uk slash week in review. Our producer is Ben Green. I'm Jonathan Friedland. See you next time. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.